The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been an eventful year in the cultural space, and specifically we're going to talk about race relations today, and this is always a sensitive issue. And Chinese perceptions of black people. It is something that's come up a number of times this year, most recently with the premiere of the blockbuster hit movie Black Panther. Now, in China, Black Panther has actually done pretty well. Remember that China now is the world's second largest film market behind the United States, soon to become the first. And so there's always expectations that when a movie opens in China, it will really help to really bring up the box office sales. Now, what we're seeing here with Black Panther was: Will Chinese audiences respond to an all-black cast? And the definitive answer is yes. Ninety-seven million dollars at the box office out of one point one nine five billion worldwide. So that's pretty good results. Even though Kobus, a lot of people were skeptical that Chinese audiences would take to an all-black cast and really a movie set in Africa that did not involve Wu Jing blowing up Africans and blowing up, you know, saving the world as he did in Wolf Warrior Two. Yeah, and we have to keep in mind that it's been an old narrative in Hollywood itself that movies with black casts or movies with largely、um, starring people of color and particularly black actors won't do good business in Asia and in China particularly. So you know, oh, it won't pay in China, won't play in China, and we need to make our money out of the Chinese market. That has been a long-term excuse to not cast black actors, especially in leads. So you know, it's interesting to see that there was a measure of success in China, but at the same time, we also saw a lot of narratives, a lot of reporting about negative fan reactions to Black Panther in China. Now, Black Panther came out in March here in China, which followed in February the fiasco that was the Spring Gala TV、uh, TV show. And now, the Spring Gala TV show, if you're not familiar. Is literally, and I'm not exaggerating here, the world's most popular TV program. 800 million people tune into this thing. One, I think it's it goes on for eight hours, and so it is just enormous the audience sizes that it has. And during this Spring Gala TV show on China Central TV, they had what could only be described as just the most ridiculous, racist, like right out of the 1950s America blackface segment, praising Africa and praising Kenya in particular. So. It's been really quite a roller coaster for the past few months. So we said we want to be able to kind of get some perspective on this. And Kobus and I intentionally did not comment earlier in the year on the Spring Gala show. And a lot of people emailed us and said we want to hear what you guys think about this. But we really felt at the time that we didn't have anything unique to bring to this because we've talked about these issues before, and in many ways it was just a repeat. So we found somebody who does have something to say on this. And Roberto Castillo is by far the best person to talk to about this. For those of you who followed the podcast for several years, you'll know Roberto. He's now a, an assistant professor in cultural studies at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. He's a longtime China watcher, and I would call the preeminent scholar on Africans in China, in particular on race, culture, and African music in China. 
So, Roberto, thank you so much for staying up late from Hong Kong to join us. And we really just so excited to get your take on these two issues. Yeah, it's not that late. It's only 9 p.m. I'm very happy to be here with you guys again. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, nine, by 9 p.m. normally, I'm usually out cold, so I, I do appreciate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. So why don't, uh, why don't you give us your take to the reception? I'm sure you were watching the opening of Black Panther in China with some anticipation in terms of how well would it be received. It, it was not a, a guarantee that it was going to kind of do $100 million at the box yeah, office. Yeah. What, what was your take on Black Panther? And give us kind of what you were expecting. Well, I, I was actually expecting, as Corbus was saying earlier, I was thinking that it was not going to be that successful. But I think that it was also, uh, it got a lot of push by all the media and all the comments that were made before the, the movie was finally released in China. I was following not only media reports in China, but I was also talking to a lot of people in China that actually went to see the, the film. And many of the people, I'm talking about Chinese people, many of the people that I was in touch with, they were surprised by the amount of people that were gathering at the cinemas in different cities in Beijing, in Guangzhou and in Shanghai, right? So I think that even Chinese people did not expect that it was going to be so popular, but I think that it was so popular, again, because of what many people knew before it came to China. I think that it was released in China maybe two or three weeks after it made the headlines internationally for all the success that it had in the West, right? So a lot of people were already aware of that, and maybe that was also something that influenced Chinese people to go to watch the movie. There's one other thing that I consider really important in terms of Black Panther's release in China, and that is this massive success and the massive crowds of people that African people and black uh, people in China, I'm talking about also African Americans and black people from different parts of the world that actually got so excited about the film and they made so many different events, so many different galas and red carpets to show the movie mainly in Beijing but also in Shanghai. So, you know, in both communities, in this case, in the Chinese community, but also in the African and, and black communities of China, I think that the movie was really a success, right? Roberto, I wonder if you could put the movie and Marvel kind of superhero blockbusters into the context of entertainment in China generally. Like, is there a big, consistent kind of fan base for these kind of movies in China that people would watch every Thor movie, for example, like every Avengers movie? Or do these audiences basically need to be whipped up from zero every time? And so, you know, kind of so how does Black Panther fit into the reception of American superhero movies more generally in China? Yeah, I think that there is a consistent group of people in China. I'm talking about Chinese people in major cities that are normally fans of these movies. And they were expected to be there at the release of the Black Panther. Actually... I saw many interviews in Chinese media of people that actually are longtime fans of Marvel movies and they were commenting on, you know, the narrative, on the structure of the movie and how sort of it connected with all the other uh, Marvel Avengers kind of universe. And so there's a lot of people in China that are aware of this, of the Avengers universe, Mar Marvel universe. So many of them were actually expecting what was going to be happening with this movie, right? And most of the comments that I got were that the movie was actually 
sort of fulfilling the role that they were expecting in the sense that Black Panther in the movie was representing what they were expecting Black Panther or what they knew before about Black Panther. So it's not the majority of people, but there are consistent groups in China of youngsters that are aware of Marvel movies, right? So, yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll just say from my own anecdotal experience here in Shanghai, twice on the subway, because, you know, when you take the subway here in Shanghai, you are literally body to body up against people. I mean, you're almost intimate with them. I mean, every part of your body is surrounded by other people. So the nice thing about it is you can peek right over to see what people are watching on their cell phones. So yeah. on two occasions now, I have seen pirate versions of Black Panther being watched yeah, on the yeah. subway. <laughs> so, I mean, that, if that's an indication of something. But yeah. it's also interesting, and I'd like to get your take on this later, but one of the other things that I've noticed is how many young people are watching international and particularly American TV shows. So right after they broadcast in the U.S., they are, they're watching them here. And I've seen a lot of people watching Scandal. I've seen a lot of people watching shows with African-American leads. And I'm just wondering if maybe the stereotype that Chinese audiences, and, and the same applied Kobus to Japan as well. People said Japanese audiences would not accept African-Americans. Will Smith never made as much money as his white counterparts, in part because the Japanese market back in the 90s and the early noughts was also viewed that way. And so this idea that because they're consuming so much pirated content and social media content of African-Americans, that maybe they're more open to it than their parents were 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I think that what Cobus was saying earlier, I mean, this kind of Hollywood story or Hollywood narrative about black movies not selling outside the country, at least in the case of China, I mean, there is no evidence to support that, right? There's never been any other film that has been prominently portraying uh, black culture or African-American culture in China that miserably failed, right? So there's nothing that really tells us that Chinese people are not going to be willing to watch movies such as Black Panther with almost the entire cast being black, right? So I think it was more like kind of a, I don't know if this is a racist Hollywood narrative or, or how this works in Hollywood, but I think it's just something that does not really have much supporting evidence. And at least we now know after Black Panther has been released globally, and in particular in the case of China, we now know that Chinese audiences are not really wasting their time thinking about these things, right? They're not really thinking, oh, there's black characters, I'm not going to go and watch the movie, right? I mean, we saw based on the box office that the movie has been having that people are willing to watch these films, right? You know, one of the interesting kind of unexpected arguments around this was made by a journalist called Eileen Gore on an, a platform called The Outline, where she made the point that Black Panther isn't playing as much <coughs> as a black movie in China, and it's, it is playing overwhelmingly as an American movie. And that a lot of Chinese people that she spoke to said, well, it's pretty much the same as other American blockbusters or other superhero movies. However, kind of for me, watching Black Panther, you know, the visual representation of Africa as this kind of fantasy world of futurism was striking and it was quite different from other superhero movies. So how do you kind of unpack that paradox? To which extent is it simply that Chinese audiences are just not as literate in these kind of relatively small nuances as Western audiences? Or are they just not reacting to the visuals in the same way as I did? Well, I mean, that's a very complex question, right? But I totally believe that people in China, when they watch films like Black Panther, many people in China are not aware of all these nuances that you are mentioning. That I mean, and this is perhaps one of the problems that we normally get whenever there is a controversy about any kind of misrepresentation of black culture or African culture in China. 
when people tell you, yeah, the thing is that this happens in China because we don't know exactly what is the history or the global history and related to colonialism and other problems that have been affecting Africa historically, right, in terms of representation. So I think that kind of going a little bit away from the question that you are asking, but I think that it is a bit difficult to actually know how Chinese audiences watch this film. But I did read the article that you're talking about, and I think that there were really good points in the sense of saying that the movie came across to many people in China as an American movie or a Western movie in the sense that they don't really relate to many of the subtle issues that many of us that are aware of all these global problems and global histories, we can read in the film, right? A lot of people in China are not able to read that just because they don't know, right? What's yeah, but I, listen, 9.9 out of 10 Americans don't know this either. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so you're not going to persuade me that to say that Westerners somehow know this and Chinese don't. Oh, yeah, I mean, these are these are subtleties that I think very few people actually can pick up. You know, Roberto, you you are a very astute follower of the media coverage of black culture in China. And this, you know, put it was big headlines of it. And a lot of the media coverage started with an article by Echo Huang uh, from Quartz. Yeah. And she's a, a Hong Kong based reporter. And and Quartz normally on these types of issues does really an excellent job. And I have to say that the article that Echo wrote was truly some of the worst journalism that I've ever read, yeah. period, bottom yeah. line. I mean, this is just a piece of crap. Here's what she's wrote. Here's the headline. Quote, a torture for the eyes. Chinese moviegoers think Black Panther is just too black. And what she basically did is she went on to different websites across the movie, kind of like the Rotten Tomatoes of China, which is called Doban. Yeah. And she kind of selectively picked comments that were provocative. And listen, there is not a movie in this world that you're not going to find people that they like or they dislike. Exactly, exactly. And what offended so many people about Echo's reporting was the fact that it was highly, highly selective. It doesn't seem like she interviewed anybody in person. There was no one to provide any context. And this is what really, and it just took off. Uh, people love these types of negative narrative stories about the Chinese. Yeah. And the problem was, though, it wasn't backed up by any fact. And yeah, yeah. the fact was we saw that audiences really did like it. We did see rather large box office numbers. You know, not huge by Chinese standards. $100 million is respectable, but I wouldn't call that enormous. I mean, movies here are doing four, $500 million now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's respectable. And it had a very sharp drop off after the first week, which again is not uncommon in today's movie market, both in the West and here in China, yeah. uh, in part because, well, there's one blockbuster after another blockbuster after another blockbuster and people yeah. just are trying to keep up. So talk to me a little bit about what you thought uh, of this story, a torture for the eyes and how you contextualize it. And then there seemed to have been a reaction to the story. Courts followed up and said, uh, well, maybe it's not quite as bad as we portrayed it to be. And then on YouTube, I saw quite a yeah. few African diaspora asking and interviewing Chinese people about what they thought, and they gave a totally different yeah. point of view. So yeah, give, mean, us the, I, give, I, give us your take on all of this. Yeah, yeah. I must say that I was, I was also a little bit affected by this piece. I was really angry because what she was doing is just cherry picking, right? And I agree with you. This is not journalism. This is just clickbait, right? And that's what it is. And one of the things that I've been realizing by writing in sort of global platforms about race and representation and blackness is that in certain spaces, whenever you write something that could be seen as a negative portrayal of anything that happens in China in relation to race, 
then you get millions of clicks from the United States. So, so I don't know if the author, Echo Huang, if she knew about this or if she was trying to sort of attract certain audiences. But uh, I was really, really affected by that. And, uh, you know, I think that you're pretty much explaining what happened there, right? In the sense that, I mean, the reason why I got angry is because you can go to the websites that she's mentioning and you can see hundreds of other comments that are not as she's representing, as if this was a trend in China, right? As if Chinese people were actually thinking that they couldn't watch the screen because there were black people in the screen because the screen was too dark and all the things that she says in there, right? I'm very happy that nowadays we have like so many ways to counteract narratives such as this one. And many YouTubers, especially uh, one of my favorite YouTubers nowadays, who's a, a Ghanaian YouTuber in China, uh, Wadamaya, he actually... Uh, he's, <laughs> Mr. Ghana Baby. His yeah, name is uh, Mr. Ghana, Ghana Baby. Ghana yes. Baby, yeah. Uh, Wadamaya is like really an interesting subject. If uh, you're listening to this and you really want to see what African YouTubers are doing in China, you have to subscribe to his channel. His channel is Wadamaya. So, and he was doing what you're saying, right? He was interviewing... First, he started interviewing some people from West Africa that he was hanging out with. And then I asked him to interview Chinese people too. And then and we spoke a little bit in, in comments in his YouTube channel. And then he told me that he was going to interview also African-Americans. So he's been doing kind of a reporting work there, asking to different communities. And if you actually pay attention to the comments from most of the Chinese people that he's interviewing, and he's interviewing people that come out of the cinema, right? You know, you get a very different sense. Now, I'm not saying that uh, there are not trolls out there and that there are not people with negative feelings. But this happens, as you were saying, this happens everywhere, right? So I just think that what we saw in that quartz piece was actually a totally misrepresentation of what I've been sensing in terms of the consumption of the movie and the reception of the film in China. But, you know, uh, this piece was really, really popular from the ways in which I track these kinds of pieces. I can see that it got a lot of attention, right? And mainly because it, it portrays China in this negative way, right? Or Chinese people in this negative way in terms of race relations. Yeah, I think that that's a really important issue. Like it's the tendency that you mentioned that these kind of articles really take off in the West. That's very interesting for me. Like it's, you know, I wonder if you could unpack like what kind of value do you think that the narrative of China as a super, super racist, especially anti-black racist country plays in the West? You know, having as, as someone who lived in East Asia, I lived in Japan for a while. I, you know, racism obviously is a big issue in East Asia. But in, in the case of actual day-to-day -day racism being suffered by people frequently in Japan, people who really, really had it very difficult were Southeast Asian. You know, like being Filipino in Japan is hard. Yeah. You, you know, kind of. And so, like, why do you think the narrative of China being anti-black has such power in the West, whereas, you know, there's relatively little interest in, for example, the difficulty of, you know, being Vietnamese in China? I mean... For, I think that for the last several years, I've been trying to answer this question, right? Why is it so popular in the West to claim that China is also racist in particular against black people, right? I mean, I think that you can find so many different examples in international media of this narrative, right? And, you know, if you ask me like this, I think that to a great extent, it's basically Western media and some people in the West trying to sort of blur the long history and the very tragic history of racism in the West. 
I don't know how to express this, but it's a little bit like washing their hands. I don't know if this is an expression, but like to sort of try to wash away all these problems that you have in the West by highlighting, see, Chinese also do this, right? Chinese are also racist in particular against black people. Now, if you if you go and talk, if you go and do research, ethnographic research, or if you just go and watch the hundreds of videos that are there on YouTube made by black people from different parts of the world talking about what does it feel to be black in China, you would find that their views on racism and what they feel when they're living in China is totally different to how they have experienced racism in other parts of the world. And most of them, although yes, there are certain little things that they always find about how Chinese people relate to other bodies and that are not Chinese in China, most of them have a rather, I wouldn't say positive view, but most of them have a view in which they normally say it's way better or I feel much more comfortable uh, living in China than elsewhere, right? But International media, global media, and people like this person that wrote the article in Quartz don't often pay attention to what people feel. They just pay attention to certain agendas that they have, and they just want to showcase China and the Chinese in a particular way, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. if I could, so, if I could kind of jump in on that. Sorry, Eric. I think there's, you know, there seems to me to, as I've said many times, I'm a white guy, so, you know, just to disregard whatever you need to disregard. For <laughs> my, from my very limited perspective, there seems to be, you know, the two fundamentally or like a, a fundamental difference in the sense that, that, you know, China is a very racially homogenous society. Not obviously not 100%, but it is and it has like historically relatively low levels of immigration. So that is a race situation. That's one particular kind of like situation of racism and, and difficulties of being a minority and coming face to face with people's ignorance. But the West has always been, or since colonialism, has been a very multicultural society using a set of draconian measures to pretend it's a white society. You know, so it's a society whose wealth is fundamentally built on the backs and through the sweat and blood of people of color you know, kind of pretending that it is an entirely white society. Compass, Compass, hold on, wait a minute. Did you say that, I, I, the way I hear it is that it's a largely white society in the West, in the US and say uh, Europe, in the perception that pretends to be multicultural. And because it, where I come from in the United States, we're more segregated now than mm -hmm. in, in public schools than we were in the Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, it, most I'm, Americans I, don't mix with people outside their race for the most part. They certainly yeah, don't no, marry that much. That's true. And, well, but well, yet we have this fantasy that says we are more multicultural and diverse than we actually are because we live in our own quarters. What I actually mean, I actually mean it economically, you know, in the sense that, you know, wealth in Europe, you know, if you look back 300 years, wealth in Europe and the, and the US is fundamentally based on the work of black people, right? And the history of the wealthy West, the reason why it is wealthy now is, is to a large extent, you know, because of structures like slavery. Um, so in that sense, you know, as a whole in society, it's always the, it's a society that's always had this kind of situation where it pretends to be, you know, kind of self-made wealth, whereas in, in reality, it's wealth that's based on this kind of exploitative labor system. That's actually what I mean. And you say the idea of these places as white places, that itself is, you know, is obviously is, is a form of white privilege that is based on economic exploitation. 
And, you know, so there's two different racisms involved. And, and the one in the West is kind of bigger and more problematic in lots of ways. So, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm articulating this very badly, but, uh, yeah. but you know what I mean. It's, <laughs> but, it's, sure, you know, it's, sure. It's, yeah, you know, but because, because it's so fundamentally systemic is what I mean. So that's, uh, you know, the, the disavowal of that in these kind of articles about, oh, yeah. China, so super racist, so super anti-black. You know, there yeah. seems to be the, the West letting itself off the hook in such fundamental ways. Sorry, I'm rambling. Yeah. yeah. So, so Roberto, let's, Kobus talked about the theme of the coverage. And one of the other highlights of a lot of this coverage would be then at the bottom of the article to start stringing together the list of racist incidents in China over the past, say, one to two years. And let me go yeah. back, just because Echo is my favorite punching bag today. Um, I'll go back to her. But she was by no means alone. She oh, yeah. just was yeah, yeah. the There's most so egregious many people here. Doing that, yeah. So let me read you a quote, and, I want, and this is going to transition us into our Spring Gala conversation. Yeah, yeah. She said, it's yet another reminder of China's limited exposure to race, which of course is true. Last month, in the annual Lunar New Year TV Gala by China State Broadcaster CCTV, producers had a Chinese actress in blackface and a cast and cast a black actor to play a monkey. In October, a Chinese museum hosted an exhibition titled This is Africa that juxtaposed images of black people to animals, including monkeys and cheetahs. And of course, so that's her quote. Who can forget our favorite laundry detergent advertisement where a uh, a black man is put into a washing machine and then a beautiful Chinese woman who's kind of presumably a housewife or a girlfriend opens it up and out pops a beautiful ethnically Han Chinese pale skinned guy. And she's very, very happy. You covered and wrote about this quite a bit. But these are the dots on the chart that oftentimes are strung together when it comes to race issues, particularly related to blacks in China. And again, it's some type of evidence to show that Chinese culture has this problem with race. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Vits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Before the show, I was talking to Kobus and I was saying, well, that's a good Tuesday afternoon in the United States. You know, and, I'm, and again, I don't want to diminish Chinese racism towards blacks because as you and I both know, it's there. It is a complicated issue. But I just don't know if it's fair in a country as large as this to kind of dredge up six month, nine month things that happen. So start talking to us about the context that this is in, whether it's the spring gala, the detergent commercial or the museum exhibition and kind of put this in a context for us. I mean, I think that this is really uh, reductionist in the sense of like portraying uh, these separate incidents as evidence of how a whole civilization is such, right? It's racist, right? So I think that this is a narrative, uh, how to say, a narrative device that media, international media normally uses, right? To, to sort of draw these separate elements and put them together in a paragraph like the one you just read as evidence, right? Like it is clear that these three incidents show that uh, China and the Chinese uh, are racist. Now, one of the things that I always highlight when I'm talking about uh, representation and, and these incidents in the Chinese context is how China and the Chinese are normally conflated as the same thing. What I'm trying to say here is that 
whenever somebody, one single uh, curator in a museum decides mistakenly to do something uh, like what happened in, in, in that particular exhibition, or when somebody else in a production house in northern China decides to do something like the racist incident with powder, then this sort of stands to show how historically China has been a racist country. So I think that this is, as I was saying, an, a narrative device to highlight what Kobus was saying earlier, this anxiety uh, in Western media and in Western imagination to prove that China is also racist, right? Now, uh, I think I find this, this discussion really uh, fascinating because, you know, nowadays when any little thing like any of this incident uh, happens, uh, we're discussing this from global perspectives, right? And uh, when we're talking about race, uh, racism, one of the things that I've been trying to highlight through my writing, is that we don't have a global way to discuss race. Uh, we don't have a global vocabulary to, uh, to talk about issues of racism. We are all drawn into the American uh, discussions of how race relations have evolved in the American context. And then that gets sort of juxtaposed or transposed into the global scene. And we are all sort of talking about that, right? So I think that uh, we need to strive to develop, right? And I don't want to sound like I'm pitching here something or advocating for something, but we need to sort of, you know, develop a way of talking about race that does not necessarily place the United States and the Euro-American and African experience of racism at the center, right? Because, you know, in the Chinese context, there is this important differences. Now, uh, just I don't want to extend too much, but just I just want to say for as an evidence of what I'm talking about is that when I wrote that piece about a year and a half ago, talking about Afrophobia and the ad that you just described, I got the piece went viral and it, it got like one million and something clicks. And 90% of the clicks, like 900,000, came from the United States. And because in the piece I was actually talking about white supremacy and how white supremacy also affects imaginaries of race in China, you cannot imagine the amount of hate mail that I got from people <laughs> in the United States. And sometimes, that is I, sometimes... And what did they say? What, what were they saying? Well, they that I was they... a, a white people hater and that it was clear that if you saw my... Twitter or my uh, or any if you just like googled my name you could see that I was like hating white people and, and, and like all <laughs> these things about like I was actually the racist person a lot of people told me that they have never ever read anything as racist as what I was writing or that uh, I was into mental gymnastics to relate these negative depictions of black people in China to white supremacy all around the world. Some people in the United States were thinking that when I was talking about white supremacy, I was talking against white people. And, you know, I mean, this is not the program to talk about this, but when we are criticizing white supremacy, we're not talking about white people. We're talking about a very complex formation that goes beyond the color of the skin, right? And yes, that, but, yeah. but you have to understand us white Americans can be a sensitive bunch here. But, you know, next time you uh, get trolled by uh, some, particularly on the conservative side, our good friend Roberto here, Cobus, was quoted prominently in Breitbart. <laughs> <laughs> so why yeah. don't you just send them back the link from Breitbart and says, listen, you know, <laughs> yeah, how yeah. bad can I be? Yeah. If I'm quoted in Breitbart. So yeah. uh, so I think, you know, that that's something to take into account. Yeah. Hey, we, we don't have a whole lot of time left. And I just want to get your take 
on the Spring Gala. And let me just set this up for people. If you haven't seen this, it really was out of 1950s America. Yeah, and, yeah. and Chinese actress Lo Naiming wore blackface. She had a comically large, I mean, like an absurdly large bottom. She had a basket of fruit on her head. <laughs> and then... Just to make matters worse, she was, you know, there was a monkey, a character playing yeah. a monkey who yeah. was apparently played by a black performer. Yeah. I mean, just like tick the boxes of offensive media caricatures and stereotypes. And that show did it all. So a lot of people, as you pointed out, reacted just passionately to this. Here we go. This shows Chinese media. They should have known better. They are racist. What's your take on the Spring Gala and what do you think was the going on? See, see, you know, I mean, when I was alerted to this, I very quickly found the, the video just maybe the next morning. And I was really like affected, right? I mean, I was just like thinking, how is this possible? What kind of... I don't know, how do you call this, right? What kind of idiocy, what kind of ignorance or or who's behind this or, you know, all these ideas that when you are angry, they're all sort of revolving in your mind, right? Now, I watched a couple of times. I started reading all the pieces. It, there was an, an immense amount of pieces that emerged all of a sudden in one day, in 24 hours in international media, everybody was talking about it. So I was like, okay, you know, let's settle down and think about beyond the offensive skit and beyond the offensive representation, what's there, right? Now, I started contacting some of my friends and, and people that I work with in China. And I was asking, obviously, what you think, again, to see how people are thinking about this, right? And, you know, I know we get into, we could get into a complex discussion about this, but I was, again, you know, told by many of my Chinese contacts that this was out of ignorance, right? Now, I know that when we say that this was out of ignorance, a lot of people get angry and say, no, it's not only ignorance, there's so many other things, right? I was thinking, okay, let's assume that this was out of ignorance, right? So one other thing that really affected me when I was watching the gala or when I watched it several times was that, okay, maybe the blackface is about ignorance. Let's just assume that. But the narrative in the whole skit, and, and I wrote a piece for the conversation that was also published by Quartz and, and many other outlets uh, republished. What I was really uh, affected by was the narrative portraying China as, the savior of Africa, right? And I was thinking, okay, maybe the blackface was an insensitive mistake or ignorance or out of like people not really knowing all these global histories in terms of representation, maybe, okay? But the fact that this narrative is there in which China is showcased as the hero, uh, and we're not even talking about uh, Wolf Warrior 2, we don't, we don't have time for that, but you know, the fact that China is portrayed in that way, that you can see that there is an attempt to belittle Africa in many ways and to represent Africa in a very simple way and to reproduce this simplistic one, what Chimamanda called it, the single story, right? The single story of Africa, the story of suffering, poverty, problems, war, and so on and so forth, right? So that, in the end, that's what got me more angry and more inspired, if you want, to actually write the piece that I wrote for the conversation in Quartz, because, okay, yeah, you know, the, the silly, idiotic thing about the blackface, but then what's behind it and what is behind the blackface, I think, is perhaps as problematic or even more problematic than the blackface itself, right? 
Yeah, I so agree. Like, the skit is just super condescending, you know, to Africa. And that is in a weird way, like, you know, as, as you say, like, you know, kind of people could be ignorant about the history of blackface in America. But still, the, the condescension really it goes to the core of it. Um, what did you make of, you know, after all of the criticism came in, the, the Chinese government really doubled down on this and essentially said all of the critics are just trying to kind of undermine the China-Africa relationship. What did you make of the official response to the criticism? No, I mean, I think it's, it's ridiculous. They should just recognize that there was a mistake. I mean, and we're not talking about a private, we're not talking about Jiangsu TV or a private or semi-private TV outlet. We're talking about CCTV gala, right? So somebody needed to have bet this, I guess. I mean, the Ministry of Information in China looks at these programs. So somebody should have looked into it and, okay, recognize or somebody should have known better that this was going to create a problem. Now, interestingly, there are a couple of videos circulating on YouTube, especially one made by Asian Boss, I think, in which they're asking people in China uh, their reaction about after the gala, right? And you do see a lot of ordinary Chinese people saying that they don't see any problems in this and that this is just a funny sort of skit and that they were just trying to make fun of uh, whatever. And then when they get asked, what would you think if the actor was a white person or people, a person from another place, but with yellow cosmetics or painting? And then they get a little bit like, oh, yeah, well, maybe I wouldn't like that. So, you know, I think that the government and people in, in CCTV should have known better because we're not talking about ordinary people betting this program. We're talking about people that are that should be aware. Now, one other, and I know we're extending a little bit, but one other thing that, that people defending this kid argued, especially in Chinese media, was that these programs are aimed at domestic audiences, right? And by the way, it's not eight hours. It would it would be really horrible, a torture to watch that program for eight hours. It's only four hours. Uh, <laughs> four hours. Four yes. hours. And it's always normally around the third hour that they have like a skit about other culture or other country, right? This was the first time in which China-Africa related were portrayed, so it makes the insult even double, right? Because, you know, they don't normally do this kind of thing on the gala show. So I just think that they, they, they should have known, somebody should have known better, and that the government should perhaps just recognize that, okay, yeah, maybe that was a mistake. We're in a process of learning, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, over the weekend, I spoke with somebody who works at H&M, and she revealed to me, she said that 40 separate people reviewed, remember there was that offensive picture of a young African-Swedish boy who was wearing a t-shirt, and it caused so much outrage. It was a racist kind of t-shirt, like, I forget what was exactly on the t-shirt, but it, it sparked a, a reaction. A, a monkey. On, on a the, monkey on, on it. And she told me, she said, 40 people looked at that picture before it was published, and no one saw it, that that would be offensive. And the point was that you have so many people who think alike that these things happen. And so, Roberto, I'll challenge you just one point that I don't think ignorance was the key issue. I also think arrogance plays an issue here. Yeah. Now, arrogance is that, again, to the producers of CCTV, one, I don't think they know how to apologize. I mean, that's just not in their nature. They yeah. are the top dog. These guys don't apologize. But the arrogance comes into this is the first time that they've allocated as much time in this show to an African subject yeah. that they didn't bring in, I don't know, go to any university and 
and find five African students and say, what do you think? Like a focus group that they didn't bring in any cultural consultants, even asking someone like you, you're a Laowai, so they probably are a foreigner, so they probably wouldn't have asked you. They could have, you know, He Wenping, any number of yeah, China yeah. scholars. Yeah, yeah, of course. Who, but they didn't do any of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it reminds me a little bit of like what H&M did. They had all people around them who agree with them, who think like them, who have the same worldview as them. Yeah. And that's why they didn't see this. And I think they were probably tremendously surprised by the negative reaction that they got. Yeah. Because I think in their minds, they were like, we're allocating all this space in the show into our most popular show of the year to Africa. People should yeah. be happy about what we're doing. And yeah. yet it turns out that they were not. Give us a little bit. We, we're way over our time. So we're. this is such an interesting topic. So we, normally we do a show half the size. So for everybody who's still with us, we are very grateful. But give us a quick pulse check of where you think we are in terms of black-Chinese race relations in China. I think that we are still at a very early stage. And I mean, there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps, uh, black people in, in China. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about such a massive country with, you know, uh, in terms of communication, with so many sort of uh, obstacles to uh, to communication that, you know, many people in the country are not really aware of the presence of uh, black people. So what I'm trying to say is like, we're st- I, I believe that we're still at a very early stage uh, of uh, race relations between uh, black people and, uh, uh, and Chinese people, right? Now, what I do find interesting in terms of uh, you know, black communities in China is how there is a very uh, different, and, and maybe I'm just stating the obvious, how there is a very different perception in terms of race relations between African-Americans, black African-American community, which is a community that has been like growing exponentially, I, I think, over the last decade in many Chinese cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, and the ways in which people from many different countries uh, of the African continent experience or think about race, right? And obviously, this is because of like the history of race relations in the United States and how many of these African-Americans, when they come to China, they, they bring that background, right? If you ask me from the people that I'm in contact with, I'm mostly in contact with people from the African continent rather than African-Americans, they still find a lot of problems, especially those that have been living a lot, a, a long time in China and those who have made families in China. Sometimes they're very happily living their lives with their children, with their Chinese wives, but still they find a lot of problems with their uh, in-laws, right, for instance. So in many cases, in-laws do not accept them, don't talk to them. And it's not only because they're foreigners, but in many cases it is reported that they don't want to see them because they are black, right? So I think that in that sense, we still, we're still a uh, very early uh, stage uh, and we cannot really compare uh, race relations in, in China to race relations in other parts of the world, specifically in the United States, which is something that I find a lot in international media. The comparison between where is the United States right now standing in terms of race relations and where is China standing? And, I, and this is fascinating because, for instance, uh, right after uh, Black Panther came was pretty much around the same time that uh, Black Warrior, uh, uh, sorry, Black Warrior, Wolf Warrior came. And a lot of people, especially uh, a, a lot of my American and friends were talking about, you know, we in the United States, we are like 
so far ahead compared to China in terms of regulations that we have all this, you know, Black Panther is this example of a different way of representing blackness, you know, African cultures and so on and so forth. And look at China and the ways they have been representing uh, Africa in Wolf Warrior 2, right? As like China being the hero saving Africa and Africa ridden by all these stereotypical negative uh, problems of war and so on and so forth, right? And as if like, as if Black Panther now was just like the antidote or the fix to all the other uh, long-standing historical problems in terms of racism and race relations in the United States, right? So I think that whenever we're talking about race relations, even in the context of China now, we'll always have to talk also about the sort of wider global perceptions on these relations. As you can hear, Roberto Castillo is one of the smartest minds when it comes to black Chinese relations and, and the African diaspora in China. You can follow him on really one of this is a must read blog for anybody interested in the subject, AfricansInChina.net. It's got all of his writings going back, what, a couple years now. You've had that blog for quite some time, Yeah, I right? think it's 2011 or something. 2011. So it is, if you're a student doing research on this, this is your must-go place. And he's also, in addition to blogging and tweeting and kind of commenting on this for, for likes of Quartz in the conversation, he's an assistant professor in cultural studies at Hong Kong's Lingnan University. Roberto, again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter account? My Twitter handle is Castillo Rocas, which is C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O-R-O-C-A-S. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or any other social media with that handle. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. I think what's lost on a lot of people, Cobus, uh, in Roberto's comments is the nuance that's required to understand this. Because so often when the three of us are talking about race relations in China, I think it sounds to a lot of people that we are trying to excuse Chinese racism or we're trying to justify it and say it's not really as bad. It's based on ignorance. I mean, all racism at the end of the day is based on ignorance to some degree or another. And I guess that's not at all what we're trying to do. I think Roberto's point that this is not the same as racism in the U.S. or in Europe or in other parts of the world. It's different because the culture is different, because the context is different, and the history is different. It may, at the end of the day, feel the same, look the same, but the substance of it is very different and where it comes from. And I think this is what Roberto does so well, is better than almost anybody else out there. I mean, certainly... Well, I won't name names, but there are some other professors that you and I have bumped heads with over the years who also study the African diaspora in China, who have been much less nuanced and sophisticated in their analysis. But I think Roberto really, really gets to it, that it is a mix of ignorance, of misunderstanding, and then at the same time playing into these false Western narratives about China that just don't apply in a Western context. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, you know, as I was saying in a very rambling, kind of annoying way during the podcast itself, I think, you know, we're talking about different <laughs> kinds of racism or different racisms. And I have very little sympathy for Chinese racism, of course. But I do think it comes from a different place or it comes from a different set of historical experiences than Western racism. And I think for me, you know, and maybe it is because I'm South African and that's, this is just, you know, my moment in South African history. But I really grew up, you know, in, in thinking about apartheid, I really grew up, you know, in studying apartheid. After a while, I really realized that you can't just think of it as, 
racism as one group of people not liking another group of people. You have to think of it also in terms of economic exploitation, you know, because that's really why it's one of the reasons why it's so pernicious. And in that sense, the economics of Chinese racism is different from the economics of Western racism. And in Western racism, the, the racism, the, that racial structure of racialized exploitation is kind of baked into the economy of the West. And in that is the point I was trying to make is that, you know, I think it, it, in order to be more nuanced about it, you have to start unpacking it as a set of experiences, but also as a set of economics. And that is, I think, what makes it so difficult. These are some of the most difficult questions to ask in this cross-cultural relationship between Africa and China. And I'd say that, again, Africa and China are not unique in wrestling with these issues. Africans in China are not unique because Chinese in Africa are also suffering these same types of situations where they're encountering different cultures, obviously through language barriers and whatnot. But it's a subject that we really, really find fascinating here. And one that we pick up every six months or so is these incidents kind of prompt yet another discussion. So we're hoping that we, again, went on a little bit longer with Roberto than we normally do, but we thought it was worth diving into this and getting to the bottom of it and to provide a little bit of needed context, especially after so much of the bad reporting that was out there. So let us know what you think. We would love to hear from you. And again, we want to encourage people to join us on YouTube or on, uh, on Apple Podcasts, on Android. We're pretty much everywhere. We'll, we'll let you know all the dots and W's at the end of the show as to where you can follow us. But also just want to give a quick little plug for our newsletter. And we're coming out with a new newsletter. But every Monday, it goes out top stories of the week that are carefully curated by us. Stories like Echo Huang's horrific piece of reporting for Quartz. That was in it because we want you to be on top of the discussion. And that's the kind of stories that we put in there so that you can really be current with what's being said about China-Africa relations. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.